So good morning. My name is Stephen. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the family pastor here at Crosswinds Church. And I just want to say thank you for joining us this morning. And just to elaborate about the meeting after the service, uh, just like Ryan assumed, it will be short. Um, And it is for those who have not served with our Wednesday night kids ministry before. So if you're interested in kind of learning about that and the needs we have, uh, I'd love to have you join us and just learn more about that. I want to start off this morning with an important question. What do you want? Not just like a thing, like a new phone, sports car, clothes, successful kids, or more money, or luscious hair. I mean, what do you really want? What do you strive for in your life? What does your heart point towards that guides your decision? So we're talking about this big picture, what do you want? It's the most fundamental question of life. It drives our decisions, our attitude, our emotions. We strive for what we most fundamentally want. The athlete who wants to win disciplines themselves in the weight room, on the court, even what they eat. This desire to win informs their decisions. And we each have wants, sometimes a big tangle of good and bad desires going on inside of us. But this fundamental idea of what we want, our our identity, our legacy, all affects everything we do. It's like times when you're driving, usually home, and then you get home and you don't remember the drive at all, right? I think that's happened to all of us because you kind of go on autopilot where you're going. And that's our life. Our heart can sometimes go on autopilot and just take us towards things, make us have decisions. And so there's this saying, right, you are what you think, and how we use that culturally, I think, is really lacking. Because we're not merely brains just put on a stick. You're much more than thought and knowledge. Have you ever walked out of church feeling like a particular sermon was really good, you needed to hear it, you make a resolve to live it out, and by Tuesday, maybe even Monday, you don't, and you feel like you failed? It's not because of something you forgot, but rather it boils down to much more than that head knowledge where our heart is taking us. So we have this internal wanter, uh, which we usually label as our hearts. Other cultures have called it like the gut and other things, but we usually call it our heart. And we so easily put that aside and think of ourselves as thinking things. And we need to really realize that our heart is the center point of our decision-making. So that sermon you so badly wanted to live out and you don't, it's not because of knowledge, it's because something else is pulling your heart. Now, I'm not advocating that we descend into anti-intellectualism, emotions-based, it feels good, so I'll just do it. Not at all. But rather, we need to take on a holistic approach to who we are. Right? This is what the Bible gives us. We see this going all the way back uh, to Luke and even in uh, Deuteronomy. So Luke 10, 27 Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And right, like I said, it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, what Jesus is quoting. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So where are you pointed? Where is your wanter taking you? And we're actually talking about what does the Bible say about serving this morning? And it boils down to our wanter, our heart. 
And we're calling this the tale of two kingdoms, two cultures, two goals that we can orientate ourselves towards. And the two are either God's kingdom and righteousness or the world's Satan's and evil. Those are the two. And the reality is if you know Jesus, you belong to his kingdom first and foremost. That is your citizenship. That is your kingdom. Not American, not Iowan, not Republican, not Democrat. You belong to Jesus' kingdom. So we are guests in this world. We are ambassadors here to share God's message of something greater. Right? We're told that in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We do not belong to this world anymore. I've been reading in Ecclesiastes uh, for my quiet times, and it's, it's such a good book. And Ecclesiastes shows that this world, this earthly kingdom, all it encourages us to strive for is like chasing wind. It cannot fulfill. It cannot satisfy your soul. Things like pleasure, laughter, achievements, wealth, possessions, a great name for yourself, sex, all of it's empty. Even relationships can't make you happy. That burden put on anyone is going to fail. All the things held up by our world saying, this is what you need to be happy, this is what you need to satisfy the longing of your soul, will not. It will leave you empty or chasing on to the next thing. But Ecclesiastes closes with this. It's 12 chapters of the emptiness of life, right? Really happy. And then it closes with this in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Right? Fear God. That's the first thing he says. He brings it to our heart. Right? Where is your heart pointed? And then out of a faithful heart we act. But it all starts in our heart. And this is really hard. Right? If we're really honestly talking about this, this is where it gets hard. Because we like checklists. We like to be able to look at a piece of paper and say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Look, I'm a good Christian. But that's not how it works. Over 15 times in Scripture, God tells us, it is about our heart is what he's wanting. And I'm going to read three of these. The first one is Hosea 6.6. 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Right? He's taking it to this heart, this steadfast love that comes from our heart. Even this idea of knowledge isn't in our head. When Hebrews are talking about knowledge, it's talking about, right, do you know it? Have you taken it in, meditated on it, and now it's causing something to come out. Proverbs 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. All of these things start in our heart and bring out actions. And like I said, this happens over 15 times. And so in our student ministry, I really like to ask this question. Why does God repeat something so many times? And it's one of two things, but usually both go together. The first one, it's really important and we need to hear it. If God said it, 
and repeated himself, it's really important. The second thing is, we're probably really bad at it. Right? Throughout Scripture, God has to keep reminding us, I want your heart, I want your heart, I want your heart. It's probably a hard thing for us to do. Throughout Scripture, we see Israel pointing to sacrifices, pointing to this checklist of things they're doing. They're like, yeah, we're doing what God asked, we're fine. And the prophets come in and they go, no, he wants your heart, he wants all of you, because it's hard. But if we're pointing to all these things, saying, look what I'm doing, look what I'm doing, the reality is that's like being a Pharisee. It's not biblical. So we adopt God's values, we have his heart, and then he sends us into the world as his servants. A popular missions organization tends to start off its witnessing to people with something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the simplest answer is yes. But the reality is sometimes when we hear that, we don't fully understand what that means. And a lot of times what people hear is, God has a plan to make me rich, successful in my job, and really happy. No. It's for you to serve him and trust him daily as he leads you. And we find joy in that. We find joy and peace as we serve our Savior, not fleeting temporary happiness, but true, lasting, heartfelt, satisfying joy. And I like this quote from John Piper. Did God create you for his glory or for your joy? And the answer is, he created you so that you might spend eternity glorifying him by enjoying him forever. In other words, you do not have to choose between glorifying God and enjoying God. If you forsake one, you lose the other. And this is the great thing about our joy, that my glorifying God and my serving God and my pursuit towards a satisfied heart are not at odds. They go together. And the reality is that we can only serve one thing. Matthew 6, 24 no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the context around this verse uh, is actually about heavenly rewards, which Chris talked about a few weeks ago. It's about seeking after lasting reward than the fleeting earthly kingdom's treasure. And the reality is that Jesus is saying, your heart can only be pointed at one kingdom, one thing, and whichever kingdom you have your heart pointed towards is the one that you are going to serve. On our missions trip a few weeks ago, they took our students through a study of Romans 12, 1 and 2, and as we got back, I was like, man, that was really impactful for our students, for myself, and I, I want to share a little bit about that with you. So we're going to read Romans 12, 1 and 2 now. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And these verses here, this is why we sacrifice, this is why we serve. We're to offer all of ourselves because we are not our own. And as we draw near to God, he shows us his will. He shows us and guides us into sacrifice and service. And so when Paul here talks about your body, offering your body as a sacrifice, he's, A, not meaning literal, right? We're all standing here. We know it's not literal. So what is he saying? 
He's saying it's all of you. It's not just skin and bones. It's not even just time. It's not even just money. It's not even just your talents. It is all of you. And we can't make a list of like, okay, here's the things I'm going to serve God with, and here's the things I want to hang on to. It's not how it works. It's all his. It's things we love doing, and it's things that aren't so great. And we live in this me-first culture, right? Take care of yourself, me comes first. And so it's literally crazy to talk about laying your life down as a sacrifice and serving others. Hyper-focused on the self causes us to just go, what do I need? What do I want? And we push others away. What I want is what I'm going to do. We even have self-care to the extreme, right? Self-care is important. You should take care of yourselves. But a lot of times I see posts on social media or talking to people that, that self-care ends up being this excuse to self-indulgence, right? It's all about me, what I want, and that's what I'm going to do. So how do we stand out in a self-focused culture as those who are servants of all? And the beautiful thing is we have an example in Jesus himself. His life was about service. He came for the purpose to serve. And we really get a glimpse of this as he washes the disciples' feet. It's the best example of the heart of a servant. So in John 13, the disciples and Jesus are heading into their last night together. They're heading into the Passover meal. This is where we'll, we'll start in John 13, 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. So I'm going to read that again. This is John 13, 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So before we get into this, we need to address the idea of foot washing. Foot washing looks very different today. Right? Foot washing, if you've maybe been to a wedding that has that, or I've even seen it done at Christian camps. But in first central Israel, it was the farthest thing from what we see it as today.
And here's why. People didn't have really nice Nikes to wear. They didn't have work boots, right? They wore sandals. It was something the lowest servant in the household would do. And because they had sandals and they didn't have cars, they weren't riding around in a truck or a minivan or, for you greener people, a Prius. They wore sandals and walked everywhere, so their feet got really messy. And by messy, it's not like when you forget something in your car, so you run outside barefoot and you just have to brush your feet off. Or needing to rinse your feet after a day at the beach. Like, the worst thing we would have to deal with if we were washing someone's feet would be, like, a really funky odor. Or if you're really unlucky, someone who's got athlete's foot. But think about this. This is an agricultural community. The temple is here in the city for sacrifices. It's messier than we could imagine. It'd be more like walking through the cow pasture barefoot and not caring where you stepped. So there's agriculture, lots of animals, there's the temple where said animals are sacrificed, and it's the Passover. So people are flocking to the city with their animals to participate in Passover. So that means in the city streets, there's animal poop, there's animal urine, and probably humans as well as they take it from their house and discard it outside. So you have all this poop, urine, dirt, mud, all mixing in the streets as you walk. And as you're walking in your sandals, it cakes to the sides of your feet, it squishes between your toes. And I hope you kind of squirm because it's nasty. <laughs> this is what it meant to get your feet messy. So this is why it's the lowest servant's duty. It is gross, right? They kneel down, they take off the sandal, and they clean the feet. So keep this in mind as we look at this text. So Jesus, knowing it's time, this is his last night with his disciples, he's going to spend the next four chapters pouring into them this teaching and encouragement. And John tells us they're getting ready to eat. And right, there should have been a servant there to wash the feet, but there's not. So one of the disciples should have done it. They should have realized no one was there to clean the feet and one of them should have done it. But none were willing. They were too proud. And I want to just read Luke 22, 24, because um, Luke tells us that during this meal, possibly as they were trying to figure out who would sit in the best seats, like the person next to Jesus has the best spot. And Jesus rebukes them. This is what he says. It says, Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Right? They were not concerned about who's the servant in the group. They were concerned with who was the greatest. They didn't want to wash the other's feet, for whoever would do that would say, I am the lowest. Like I said, this wasn't the first time they argued about greatness. Several times throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus rebuking them for focusing on who is the greatest. Even two of the disciples, who are brothers, they come to Jesus, and they bring their mom. And they're like, hey, Jesus, we should be your number one and number two. Me on your right, my brother on your left, and see, my mom even agrees. Yeah, your mom agrees. <laughs> and Jesus reminds them that it's not about being first. And they still don't seem to understand by the three years they've spent with Jesus, by the time they get to the Passover meal, 
they're still arguing who's the greatest. So they're in the room, around the table, the feast has been prepared, but there in the corner stood the pitcher of water and the basin. No one stirred. Right? I wonder if each disciple just in his mind is going, who's going to get up? I hope it's not me. Somebody else better get up. Somebody else better do this. Someone else should be the lowest in the group, not me. And the person who gets up and gets the pitcher and the wash basin leaves them all seemingly speechless. The only person we have a recorded saying from is Peter. And Jesus gets up, he takes off his cloak and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And this taking off the cloak is really significant because it's not just Jesus not wanting to get his clothes dirty. This is actually how the servant would be dressed to do this, just in a loincloth. So Jesus does the humiliating job, and he even takes on the appearance of the servant who is supposed to be doing this. So he gets down on the floor in front of the disciples, and he takes off their sandals. And the God of the universe, who every person should bow face down towards, kneels before the disciples takes off their sandals, he washes the mud, the poop, off their feet. And he does so as a humble servant. And Jesus does all this to set an example for us. And Jesus says these humbling words in verse 16. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Right? None of us have the right to say that something is below my status to do in serving. It's not below my station or my class or my dignity because Jesus, the God of the universe, got down and washed the disciples' feet. Our master led in the most humble of ways. And the reality is to not serve is to say that you think you are greater than God. It's showing the same pride the disciples showed. And this is where Jesus flips the idea of greatness upside down and he redefines the greatness in his kingdom. And he says to the disciples there around the table and throughout history, because we get to read his words, your purpose is to serve others. That is true greatness. Jesus showed it by washing their feet. And not just the feet of those who with a clean heart called him master. But if you look at verse 2, Jesus also washed the feet of Judas, the betrayer. Jesus knelt down before Judas. Before Judas. The guy that betrays him to the most horrific death. So we can't say, I can't serve that person. They're annoying. They hate me. They don't love Jesus. They betrayed me. Fill in the blank. We can serve because Jesus served us. And we need to stop being like the disciples and thinking just of ourselves. And then in verse 17, Jesus says, If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. Faith without works is dead, James tells us. Right? We just don't know it intellectually because we've heard these verses. We've read these verses. It's not like knowing that the earth is round. It's not just some fact Jesus calls us to acknowledge. He is calling us to have a changed heart and live it out. It's about our heart. 
And because it's about our heart, the one that chooses not to serve and the one that serves for the wrong motives is the same. I'm going to say that again because it's really easy for all of us, including myself, to make excuses or get caught up in legalism. So if you're serving for the wrong reasons, you're the same as the one who does not serve. God wants your heart first. Right? It's not so that I can get a pat on the back. It's not so that I can get thanked. It's not so that people look at me and think I'm amazing. It's not because of whatever I get out of it. It's about humbly serving our Savior. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write down which kingdom, consumer or servant, and put a question mark next to it. The disciples up to this point have been consumers their heart orientated towards the earthly kingdom, looking to be great, looking for Jesus to help them out, listening to the teaching, but not really meditating on it, accepting it, and living it out. Right? Which kingdom are we serving? And this starts with the basic that we all serve or enslaved to something. We're either enslaved to sin to continue to do wrong, to be stuck in its grip, or we are set free from sin, to serve God with all that we are. And it's this weird idea that we are freed from sin, yet bound to the God of the universe who loves us infinitely. And so the Bible uses this term, depending on your translation, it could be bondservant, slave, or servant. But the reality is this word probably should be just be translated slave. And it's this Greek word called doulos which means one who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master. That's what we're called. Paul calls himself that. He says, this is from Paul, a bondservant of Jesus. Paul says his whole life is dedicated to serving God. The Bible goes all in on this idea that you are not your own. If you follow Jesus, you've been bought at a price. You are his bondservant to serve where he directs. So it starts in our heart and proceeds to action. All that I am towards God's kingdom for God's glory. And this is the umbrella that covers everything we do. So we serve God, but we also serve others. Through every action, through our desires, through our thoughts, with all that we are, serving God is the umbrella. So now we're going to talk about just some more specific points of, of serving the church and serving others. And I want to be really honest as we talk about serving the church. Service is not about you. I hear people talk about finding a place to serve where they just love it. And I want you to love where you serve. I love my job. I love getting to hang out with kids all the time. But sometimes it's hard. And service is going to be really hard. You may not even love it right away. One VBS leader shared with me, right, they loved serving at VBS but one of the not great things is throughout the week, so throughout the week, not just one day, a child continually was picking their nose and wiping boogers on said leader's leg. Continually. I would say that's close to the foot washing. <laughs> but it's not all rainbow and unicorns. But we serve. This last year at CW Kids, we had someone throw up in here. And we had an awesome leader who took it on and cleaned it up, and that stuff was nasty. And we as a church staff try to see where God is working and jump in and provide those opportunities for you. And that's why we stand up here and ask you for help. 
We need it. God is doing great things, and we want to jump in and serve where God is working. And we have some things in our church, really important, that some people either don't want to serve in, or maybe they just don't know that there's needs. And the reality is we have some ministries that if we don't get more help, they won't happen. And one of those is actually our CW Kids this fall. Right? It's great to stand up here and talk about how excited we are that we have all these kids coming. Or if you see when we dismiss for children's worship, a ton of kids leave and a ton of kids are going to come back at the end. But a lot of kids means we need a lot of help or they'll destroy us. And we have had amazing volunteers who were actually at CW Kids this year on more Wednesdays than I was because they didn't have someone to help in their classroom. And that's not okay. We also have needs in our hosting ministry, greeters or people to make coffee. And we need help working in the new facility. So I want to encourage you to jump in and try serving somewhere. Right? It may be a hard thing. You may learn to love it. It's one of my favorite things when I talk to people and I invite them in and they're like, I don't know about this. And then after a few weeks or months, they're like, man, this is great. It's not easy. You may get boogers wiped on you. But man, especially like seeing the kids love you and love Jesus and learn, there is nothing better than serving our Savior and seeing the rewards of that. And a part of our vision statement is we ask big things of people because we expect big things from God. And we do that. And it's been amazing to see how God works in big ways. And the reality of many churches fall under this 80-20 rule. And if you haven't heard it, is that 80% of the work is done by only 20% of the people. And I think our church is somewhat close to that. And I can tell you, some of the people that do a lot of the work that serve in lots of different ministries are really tired. And they may need a break, and that means we need help so that they can take a break. And this is not a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. It's an invitation to come and serve, to come and see what God is doing, and to see what God will do through you. Years ago, uh, when I first started ministry, I was, I was at a different church, and I got a call one morning, and our senior pastor was out of town, so someone left a message on my phone, and they're like, hey, one of our... Um, regular attenders who's in a nursing home, um, they, they would like for you to come and do communion today with them. And I did not want to do it. My thought was like, that's the senior pastor's job. That's his job. He'll be back like tomorrow or the next day. He can just do it when he gets back. And as I was thinking this and processing this, I was very convicted because that morning I had read Ephesians 2.10, which says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I felt very convicted by God of, hey, this is a work I have prepared for you. Go and do it. And so very reluctantly, I said, okay. So I went to the church. I got the communion stuff ready. I didn't really know this person. I drive to the nursing home. I do communion, talk for a little bit, and I go home. And I found out before our senior pastor was able to get back, this man passed away. And his wife came up to me a few weeks later and just thanked me for going and loving him and serving him by doing communion with him. And man, we don't know what God's prepared for you. 
But man, we get to serve our Savior and serve others. So as we talk about serving others, let's read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. No, we have not just switched over to a wedding this morning. Right? We always hear this passage read at weddings, and it's not a wedding passage. This is the basics of love. This is how we're supposed to act towards people. And I love this quote, the problem is service is hard. It's difficult to deny ourselves, to consider the needs of others, and place their preference above our own. It's often painful to give time, money, and energy to friends, families, neighbors, and fellow church members. Serving can be draining, time-consuming, and softly, or costly. But that is love. Love is really hard. None of those things listed in 1 Corinthians are easy. But it's love. It was Jesus' love that set aside all his glory to come and die for you. And it's our joy to follow, to wash the feet of those around us. I had a New Testament professor who was just amazing. I looked up to him so much. He, he was this genius with the Bible. He was a great speaker. And he shared with our class one day that, you know, when he would attend a church or he would switch churches, people knew what he would did. And they were like, hey, when are you going to preach? When are you going to teach a class? When are you going to impart your knowledge to us? And he said that whenever he started attending a new church, he would always start by cleaning the bathrooms. Man, that was so humbling to me. His value of service and not putting himself up as the greatest, and I want to be like him. Jesus emphasizes this and says it this way in Mark 9, 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You know what it takes to be great? being the least, and serving those around you. That is greatness. So now I want to talk about the body of Christ, and then we're going to talk about other people around us as we talk about this. So Philippians 2, 4 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this is where it gets really important. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Grace says, consider the people in the body more important than yourself. That is really what this boils down to right? For anything. It might be your song preferences or styles or decorations or whatever it is. In our giving and how we love each other, right? How do we look at one each other and say, I want to love you the way Jesus loved? And I hear, I've heard this sad thing. It's a cliche. You've probably heard it too. Well, I love the people in my church, but I don't have to like them. 
garbage. Makes no sense. God calls us to love and put each other in esteem. Right? How do we do that? And the next is anyone God puts around us. God is sovereign. And as we learn to trust that he is in control, then any person he puts around us every day are people we are called to serve. From the people we see daily in our homes, to work, to even the person standing in front of you at the grocery store. Right? And even at work, this means your boss too. You are called to serve your employer well as an extension of the gospel. And if you want to look more at that, you can read Ephesians 6, 5, and 7. But we serve with all that we are, our time, our money, ourselves, our possessions, whatever it is. If we truly say and believe that everything I have, including my own life, is because of God and it belongs to God, then anything he asks of us, we can give or do. And God calls us to especially give to the needy, the hurt, the oppressed, and the outcast. In Deuteronomy 24, 19, says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Right? The Israelites are actually forbidden from collecting all of their field so that the foreigner and the needy could be fed and taken care of. I guarantee you this ate into their profit margins. This ate into the comfortability of their lifestyle. And the same applies to us. When we see God's heart for the needy, the hurt, the oppressed, and the outcast, it changes how we even manage what we have so that we can serve God and the people around us. And what about that person, right? The one you see in Walmart and you turn and you hide your face and you walk down a different aisle. Yes, the person you just thought about. That person. You are even called to serve that person. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He washed Judas' feet. Right? The Savior of the world could wash Judas' feet. Then we can love and serve those around us that may annoy us or bother us or whatever it is. We can love and serve because our Savior changes our hearts to be able to do so. And I want to close with this because all of this is hard work but it's not burdensome. And so as we read Romans 12, 1 through 2 earlier, there is no condition given in these verses. It's not serve so you can be happy, or serve so you can be fulfilled, or serve that you're going to pat on the back. No, it just says serve God because he has called you to. And that is the reward, serving and knowing the God of the universe. Because he is the reward. It's so easy. We push ourselves for other rewards. We work really hard at our jobs, or we want to make milestones physically, so we push ourselves in the gym or running on the track or whatever it is, and it's really easy to not push ourselves to serve. But like I said earlier, this isn't a guilt trip. For some, it may be a wake-up call to serve. For others, encouragement to do a little bit more or whatever God is calling you to do. All I ask is that you ask him and honestly listen and hear. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So all those that carry the loads of burdens and regulations, who are trying to just make it on your own, or serving for the wrong reasons, or trying to do a checklist, Jesus wants to give you rest freedom of a changed heart to choose what is right. That Jesus takes our dead hearts, makes them alive, and gives us the ability and the freedom to choose what is right. That is the easy yoke. But the anxiety and burdens and trying to get it all right are too much. The anxiety and lack of satisfaction from the world has to offer fails us. But the freedom to serve God spontaneously eagerly, enthusiastically, with all that we are. That is the easy yoke. That is where the joy of glorifying God and enjoying him forever comes from. When we fully take on our citizenship of God's kingdom as his servants, it is life-changing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you change and renew our hearts. Lord, I thank you that even when we mess up and we serve for the wrong reasons, we serve selfishly, or we don't serve at all, that you don't hold that against us, that you forgive us, you welcome us, and you love us. So Lord, I pray as we just close in worship that we would hear your voice and respond in trusting you to whatever you're calling us to do. In Jesus' great name, amen.